0: And we do have a guest speaker of the day. It's Randall Worley. He's preached here four times, I think. Three times. Whenever. How many here? But I love Randall. I've known him since uh, the eighties. He pra- pastored a church uh in Pineville, when we used to live in Pineville before we moved up here. And uh but now he's he travels all the time, that's what he does. He just travels all over the the creation, all over the world really, and so I do appreciate him, appreciate him coming, Uh, he's going to give us an awesome word, and then at the end of the service we'll receive an offering for him, like we want to really bless our guest speakers, so um, I'm saying that for the ushers' sake, because I forgot to tell them, but you know, one of them is, yeah, and uh, he's going to tell the other ones now. (laughs) But let's just, Randall wants come up here, and let's give him a big hand, and let me just pray for him. Thank you for coming, Randall. And let's just reach your hands towards him, and we're just going to bless him. Lord, thank you for Randall. Thank you for a uh, fresh anointing on his life. Thank you for open doors. Thank you, Lord, for his uh, family, his wife, his children, his grandchildren. Lord, all those that are really important to him today, we bless them. And we ask you, Father, to reveal yourself to, to him and his family in a, in a new way this year. That this would be a, a year of breakthrough, a year of healing, a year of new doors opening, new ventures in heaven. Um, Lord, we just ask you to do that. And I just see, Lord, that's your heart for him, for him and each one in his family. That this is a time that you're going to answer some questions and answer some prayers and that they've been praying and looking to you for, and also, Lord, I see surprises that okay. they above and beyond what we could ask or think, yeah, amen. amen
1: Thank you Thank you. It's always good to be back at River life. I get to come here at least once a year, and um, I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm still just a little bit wrecked from the cowboys testimony. <laughs> I know what he's been through with his heart certainly touched mine, did it yours? It really did. And uh, as I look across the audience, I think that there are a few faces that I see that maybe uh, don't regularly attend here, they are friends of ours, and we're thankful if I took time to mention all of them, then uh, I would get in trouble. But I must make mention this morning, which is very rare That of two, uh, two things. Uh, That my wife is with me this morning uh, For which I'm very thankful And her mother and father as well And uh, the, the best deal that I have ever negotiated in my life I negotiated over 36 years ago When I talked Olin Lee into allowing his wife to marry me So... Yeah, and I was was able to do that at 19 years old. I was two weeks away. Well, actually, just a few months away from turning 20. So if I don't ever negotiate another good deal, that was a good one. How about you turn with me to Luke's Gospel in Chapter 5. Luke's Gospel in Chapter 5, and I want to read the first 10 verses of a scenario that takes that unfolds that maybe you have read time and time again but I think maybe it's possible for us for us to see it with fresh eyes Luke chapter 5 beginning with verse 1 and I'm not sure what translation you may be reading from I'm reading from the English standard version I understand that in any given meeting that there are uh, a myriad of translations out there and, uh, and I'm not intimidated by that, but uh, I've chosen the English Standard Version. Verse 1 says, On one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake, just it. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at his knees, at, the, at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with him with Simon. Jesus said to Simon, Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And, they, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, I'm full aware that probably there's not an individual in this room that is not somewhat familiar with this particular story. And I do believe, though, that what I'm going to be sharing with you this morning is without question, and uh, that is probably a bold statement to make, without question, relevant for every person who has a pulse. You do have a pulse, don't you? Sometimes when I'm speaking to different audiences and I am developing a particular topic, I have some question as to whether or not I am reaching everyone. But this morning, I have great assurance that no one is going to be left out in the connection that you're going to make with this truth. Amen. Now, what I want to talk to you about is failing successfully. <laughs> failing successfully. Now, most people would consider that to be an unusual pairing of words because there's a polarity between them. they is a paradox that exists between them. What does failure have to do with success? All truth has to exist in some sort of tension. You cannot have love without the presence of fear. You cannot have faith without the presence of doubt. You cannot have peace without the presence of confusion. These things do not exist in a vacuum. There has to be that tension that is always present for you to experience truth. Does that make sense to you? Let me put it to you this way. When you came out this morning to warm up the car, as I did, and it's 27 degrees, I am seldom conscious until that moment when I hear the engine make that first growl after inserting the key into the ignition. And I'm made aware, especially on mornings like this, that there's a battery that has both a negative and a positive pole that gives the engine the ignition that enabled me. And I know that may seem profoundly simple that gave me the ability to get to where I am right now. Unfortunately, I think sometimes we tend, as it seems Peter did here, in this encounter that he had with the Lord, which was the initial encounter that he had with him, to assume that if things are beginning to begin, it get increasingly negative, that that is a reflection that we're doing something wrong. And as a result, what we do, we allow failure to, in many ways, define us. Without realizing, again, that you cannot have success without failure. Now, I want you to see the context here. Uh, You know, how many times do we hear people in my position that are preachers and teachers, that they cite a text, they read it, and then they never return to it. And you wonder, why on earth did they even read the text? Because what follows has little or nothing to do with what they read. So I think it's really important for us to develop what happens here with Peter, which is a transitional moment. It's a transformative moment, which, by the way, have I ever shared with you my definition of transition? Have I in some of my previous visits? You know, transition is a word that is overused, misused, and even abused. Quite often when I haven't seen people for any length of time and I'm getting caught up with them, I ask them, how are you? And usually they respond quite often, I'm in transition. To which I want to reply, you are either leaving a transition in the middle of a transition or on your way to another. It's an ongoing part of the curriculum for us, isn't it? The transitioning is where we experience truth. So my definition that I teased you with a little bit there. This definition I didn't get from a book. I got it through the many transitions that I've gone through. Transition is that nebulous, undefinable space between where you've been and where you're going where God redefines you that he might reintroduce you. This is really a transitional moment in Peter's life, and he is not aware that this is getting ready to happen. The context of it, if you noticed, in, in case you didn't, is the Sea of Galilee, but Luke calls it the Sea of Gennesaret. Now, why would he do that? Inquiring minds want to know. Would you like to know? Why is it that the other gospel writers refer to it as the Sea of Galilee, and here Luke refers to it as the Sea of Jacinaret? The word Jacinaret is very telling because it comes from the word from which we get the word a harp. You're familiar with a harp, of course, this unique instrument that, remember I told you that truth is held in tension, a unique instrument that has not just six strings like on a guitar or, what is it, four, three or four strings on a cello, but it has a myriad of strings, doesn't it? Uh, if you've ever seen someone pl- playing a very large harp in an orchestra, the weight of that harp is such until they have to play from a seated position, don't they? It's, it's quite an... Int- it, and it it resonates with a very distinct sound. Maybe you're hearing it now when they're plucking those strings and then they reach those moments in the movements of the music where they will run their fingers all the way down the harp. And Some of you are looking at me as if what does that have to do with a body of water in Palestine? It has a lot to do because The context of what Jesus said was always as important as what he said. Sometimes, listen to me now, sometimes we miss what it is that God is trying to say to us because we don't see the context in which he's saying it. I I think probably every one of you in here this morning have answers that you've been, or questions that you've been waiting on to be answered for a long, long time. Some of you months, some of you even years. And uh, we don't realize that Sometimes those answers don't come until the context presents itself in which we can really be taught. Is this making sense to you? Peter is oblivious to what is getting ready to happen. See the scene again. Jesus, it's almost like he is being pursued by The Bible describes here a crowd. They're pressing on him to hear the word. And Peter and his partners have just finished all night, a long night that seemed like longer than any normal night of fishing. This is is pressing toward them as Peter and his partners are basically collapsing from fatigue. And they don't realize these men that are getting ready to have their lives changed forever. They don't realize that their failure and their fatigue and all of their efforts to this point is going to be met by someone that is going to forever alter the course of their lives. Now, what I want you to take from that, because, see, most of us, because life is so daily, that's the difficult thing about life, isn't it? That's really profound what I just said. That's why Paul would say, I die daily. Life wouldn't be so difficult if it wasn't so daily especially especially when we find ourselves almost mindlessly, monotonously going through the motions. You get up and you go through the same routine and you go to the same place every day and you see the same faces every day and your job is... Am I making sense to you at all? Oh, yeah. That has a way of wearing on you, doesn't it? That has a way of causing you to be so fatigued until you wonder if there's ever the possibility for anything changing. This is, this is the occupation of Peter. This is what he does. And th- on this particular morning, as the sun is coming up, he is washing nets with tired muscles. There's nothing more difficult than to do what you have to do and do it with exhaustion. You've got to remember, when he responded to Jesus' request, he said, We have toiled all night and taken nothing. There had to be a degree of embarrassment that he is experiencing too because this is his profession. This is what he's supposed to be good at. This is something that has worked well for him in the past, but is not working now. These nets are waterlogged, and they are tangled with debris. These are the kinds of nets that they just don't drag behind a boat. We would refer to them as a sane net. Some of the fishermen know exactly the use of that term. They stand out on the bow of the boat, and you know you 've got to work with me here and sense this and feel this because I want you to be in the boat for the for the next few minutes. Are you willing to join me? Are you willing to join me and so he 's out on the bow of the boat all night long, and it takes such exertion to throw that Sane, out across the bow of the boat and there is a rope that is attached to the corner of it because when it falls into the water it collapses and sinks and forms a circle so that they can enclose the fish and he is pulling it now he does not just have the weight of the net itself but whatever he has caught as it's bouncing along the bottom hopefully there's going to be fish in it when he finally pulls it up to the edge of the boat it is now soaked with water and with every cast it is getting more debris in it it is getting tangled it is getting heavier, and he's done this all night long. He has to; his back has to be in excruciating pain. His muscles are cramping. He's probably, maybe ta- taking time out every few minutes from trying to clean this tangled net. He's probably taking time out to probably stretch his hamstrings because he can feel them nodding up. There's, his body is just as knotted as the net. <clears throat> now, maybe some of you are wondering what on earth that has to do with who you are and where you are. How many attempts have you made, some of you in this room, just in the last few weeks have sent one resume out after another. You've cast here. You've cast there. Some of you have made attempts at other things that you felt were going to work. And every time it came back to you, it came empty and more tangled than it was before. And he is unaware. I just get this sense, if you allow me, here, in my own ina- imagination, he's up maybe on the bow of the boat, and he's trying to untangle this net. And uh, he feels kind of the boat bob a little bit. Uh, just like when someone in a smaller craft like this, when they step into it, you can feel it begin to bob. Are you with me? You Feel it just give way. And he, he turns around. And he sees this man that maybe he's heard rumors about. And what are all these people gathered for? I've often wondered. I was thinking about this this morning. Did you notice Luke does not tell us the content of what Jesus taught? In so many other places, we have line by line transcript of what he said. But I wonder what he's talking about. Maybe what Peter doesn't realize is that if he would stop doing what he thought was really important at the moment and turn around, he would get what he needed a lot sooner. But when Jesus sits down, did you notice it says that he sat down in the boat? He didn't stand up to teach, but he sat down in the boat, which is the posture that most of the oriental teachers would take. I always love to make reference to this because, you know, this is a really tiring thing that I do, whether you you think maybe that what I'm doing right now is, is something that is not that particularly tiring, but it is because not only am I having to stand in front of you, but I'm having to focus all of my mental capacities, as limited as they are. And there is this emotional release that is going on and spiritual release that is going on. And I'm the one standing up when in reality, probably I ought to be seated and you standing. <laughs> but this is, this is the manner of teaching in that day. The student stood while the teacher sat. And I don't really have time, even though I wished I did, to to give you all of the import of that and what that implies, uh, other than just to say that when they take that position that is seated in rest, it really implies to us that these men are seated in a seat of authority. They're they're speaking from authority. His pulpit is a boat. His pulpit is is the means by which Peter makes his living. So let me hasten on to the point here, because what happens is that when he finishes sharing whatever it is that he shared with this huge audience that that had gathered, Jesus looks at Peter and he tells him to launch out into the deep and to cast his nets for a great catch of fish. His response, again, was we've toiled all night and we've taken nothing. Uh, Failure has a way of convincing us, if we fixate on it, of convincing us of lies that become greater than truth. Remember I told you in the beginning that I, that I have no question that, that what I was going to be sharing with you this morning um, is, is relevant for everyone. The response that Jesus gives to Peter is, is pretty normal, pretty expected, isn't it? Because, listen, this is something that is a generational occupation. His father was a fisherman and his father before him. Uh, this is something that he grew up on. This is something that he was well acquainted with. It became second nature. And uh, from what I gather, even though I haven't heard that much about who you are, Rabbi, you are, he does call him a teacher, doesn't he? He does call him master, so he knows his reputation. Here's what I'm trying to help you with. Do you realize that a lot of times the answers that you are so desperate for will not come from expected sources? Maybe that's one, one uh, facet of, of what Jesus said whenever he said he has ordained wisdom uh, from the mouth of babes and even sucklings. It's amazing to me what I have learned from my grandchildren just in the last few years. I think it's it's true what uh, Einstein, his name is synonymous with genius, isn't it? He said, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you probably don't understand it yourself. And then he went on to say, he says, the only thing that's hindered my learning is my education. Most of us don't realize how much we have to, or, or we need to unlearn. Undoubtedly, what happened... With Peter here is that, you know, and you do, see, we know the rest of the story about this man, don't we? We understand that Peter will be the one who has this propensity to overpromise and under-deliver. True? Uh, see, he, he has no idea that following this encounter with Jesus that he will do such exploits as walking on water and that he will have flashes of revelation. Well, he will be the only one, the less likely one of the bunch because he seems to be illiterate. He was unlearned, wasn't he? And he will be the one that when Jesus is asking, who do men say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? He'll say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But he also will betray him, won't he? He will, he will do this literally in Matthew chapter 16 after he gets this revelation of who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It seems like, I don't know how much time lapsed, probably more than a day, that he is trying to convince Jesus not to go to the cross. And Jesus turns around and says to him, get thee behind me, Satan, before you save or not the things that be of God, but of man. I mean I love this guy. He is an emotional roller coaster. He's real, he's raw, he's relatable. You don't I wonder if he's even bipolar. Sometimes you don't know who's going to show up. I mean the man's middle name is Bravado. He's got a foot-shaped mouth. Because in, if you read through the Gospels, you will discover about him that other than Jesus, he's talking more than anybody else. And usually when nobody is addressing him. He's, those, you know, he's the personification of those external processors that make you nervous. You never know which one's going to show up. You may feel like I've gone off the reservation here a little bit, but let me assure you, I think Jesus, as discerning as he was about Peter, already knew that about Peter. And what happened in this moment, Peter misinterpreted, as most of us do when we fail. that we don't see the context of the failure. And as a result, we don't learn from it. We go through it again instead of growing through it. See, to me, these are not just clever cliches. What I am speaking to you, I hope you discern enough is coming through the very thread and fabric that has been woven in me for over three decades, almost four decades now, of trying to learn how to succeed out of what I've failed at doing. God does you an amazing failure by letting you fail. Because in it, he allows you to continue to keep things in perspective and to understand what favor really is about and to know that favor. See, this is a word, again, that's tossed around by so many people these days, again, that is misused and abused, favor, favor. Sometimes I almost get nauseated at the sound of it. Because I think some people, remember I told you, truth truth has to be held in tension. They don't understand that favor from God does not necessarily guarantee that things will be favorable. (laughs) Somebody ministered to me prophetically right before the meeting. And if I'm not mistaken, one of the things that they said, it was very encouraging. One of the things that they said was that you're one of God's favorites. And I thought, yeah, sometimes I feel that, sometimes I don't. You know, listen, you consider the nation of Israel, and the Bible says concerning them that they were chosen in a furnace. That's where God chooses you, in a furnace. It doesn't seem that I'm encouraging you very much so far. (laughs) You're chosen in a furnace. And one old rabbi said, yeah, we're chosen, all right. We're suffering from too much chosenness. (laughs) Jesus knows that Peter is going to be this man who is going to have this propensity to make promises that he can't keep. But see, what Peter doesn't realize, let me just reach forward, and then I'll come back to where we are here by the Sea of Galilee. He doesn't realize that even though he is going to be reminded, haunted by the crowing of the rooster, not just the day that it happened. You know, nature's alarm clock that awakens us. In third world countries, you know what it's like. We've heard them, haven't we? Well, you don't need an alarm clock because the nearby rooster will awaken you somewhere around 4.30 or 5.00. See, this is like a song that's playing over and over. You ever have that experience when you hear something you can't unhear it? And all he is hearing every time that the rooster crows, every morning that he gets up, it's a reminder of his failure, his egregious failure of Jesus when he needed him the most. But here's what I want you to take hold of. And this is challenging to a theology that most of us have been conditioned by, a theology that has conditioned us to believe that our relationship remains intact with God as long as we are able to do good on the promises that we've made to him. You make promissory notes with your mouth that you will eventually be unable to make good on. So listen to this. If you don't take anything away from what I've said so far, and by the way, are we having fun at all? I I am. I am. Your relationship with God has not ever been based on the promises that you make to him but on the promise that he made to you that he would never leave or forsake you. Do you know, do you know that there are more references directly and indirectly from Genesis to Revelation about God never leaving us than there is to faith? I don't think you got that. Yeah. Yeah. But Peter doesn't know this, does he? He He's not aware of what's getting ready to happen. He doesn't realize that what Jesus is getting ready to do is to to take that which he perceived to be an unmitigated failure and show him that the seeds of success were hidden in it. Master, we've toiled all night and taken nothing. And we, listen, you you need to read this with a, a little more reality and basic logic because do you think that he said it this way, we've told all night long and taken nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down that. No, I, I have this sense because, see, you read those in the, in the verses and the way that they're framed, and it just comes just like that. Uh, There may have been a long pregnant pause before he finally conceded to the request. (laughs) But before I move on from that, you know, this whole thing of Peter's response about feeling like a disappointment, feeling like an embarrassment, which I... Oh, that's something I'd love to spend some time talking to you about because there's probably not a person in this room that has not ever felt like they were a disappointment or an embarrassment to God. And you're laboring under an absolute delusion. See, that does not fit with the way that we've been taught about repentance. That it's more about our remorse. That it's more about what we are sorry for rather than it is about the greater reality that he's always known of us. I can assure you there is therefore now no, how much? No No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made us free from the law of sin and death. Whenever you feel separation anxiety from God, I promise you that this is merely your mind that is at enmity with God, that is alienating you. It is not the truth and never has been the truth. Because when you repent of something to God, that is not when he makes the discovery. Go ahead and divulge to him your weakness. Go ahead and divulge to him how you blew it. As if that is when he becomes fully conscious (laughs) of the ramifications. No, no, no. No, the purpose of repentance is really for you to uncover and to recover the truth that he has always known about you and wanted to tell you. See, I, I came up in a church culture and I have great respect and honor for the, my heritage. But like every generation that has preceded us, there were certain things that certainly needed some updating. And I'll need updating tomorrow. <laughs> and I would hope you do too. Because if you know, if I ask the question of the oldest person in this room, do you want to continue to grow? I would think that their response would be absolutely yes. Well, growth cannot happen without change. Yeah. Cannot happen without change. What was true of you? I, I like what Carl Jung said teaches one of the fathers of modern psychology what was true of you in because he divides up our lives in the morning afternoon and evening he said what was true of you in the morning of your life is not true in the afternoon of your life and what was true in you of you in the afternoon of your life is not true in the evening of your life that does not challenge the absolutes of truth but see, there are certain things that are not true of me now at this age and stage of my life that were absolutely true in the morning of my life. And the reason why some people fixate on failure and remain in those previous ages and stages, it's almost like their clock, their life clock stop. There was a power surge. There was a storm that came into their life, like knocking out the power to your house. And the digital clock is flashing. But it's a time from 1976. And you're still in 1976 because you failed back there. I just picked a random year. You failed back there, and that's where your life clock stopped. And that's where you decided that you would begin to assess your risk tolerance. And that's what's happening here with Peter. He's having to seriously assess his risk tolerance. Does, the, does those words make you particularly anxious, risk tolerance? <laughs> Hey, I promise you the reason why many of us are not experienced God in new and fresh ways is because we have already predetermined what our risk tolerance is and we're not going to go any further and we don't understand why God is not as active in our life as he is in other people's lives. And we don't understand why. And see, I was thinking about that while some of the people up here during the worship time, and they were having what I know to be genuine, authentic encounters with the Lord about how some may view that and observe that. And they, because of their lack of experience, assess the credibility of those who are having one. Usually when God lets you see that, it's to remind you not... Of what they are experiencing, but what you're not experiencing. And to, and to think, I still have time left. I think it's T. S. Eliot that said, and you know, I always try to give people credit when I read these profound things. You, know I, I have said that. Sometimes when I quote someone, I will give, you know, I'll give credit to the first time I use it. The second time I will say I've heard it said, and the third time I will say I've always heard, I've always said. (laughs) But I think it's Elliot that said, it is not until you are willing to risk doing something that cannot be undone that you will ever know what can be done. See, the reason why this is so real for me right now is because at the, at, the, at the very beginning of the evening of my life, he is requiring me to take risk that I would prefer not to take. If you want faith to be active in your life, you cannot separate faith and risk. Neither can, you, neither can you experience faith with everything always being so predictable because faith and predictability cannot coexist. You, want, you don't know why maybe you're not getting the healing that you desire or the restoration or the reconciliation or all these other things. It is because you want God to come to you where you were instead of taking the leap to where he is, launching out into the deep because that's where the abundance is. That's where the abundance is. <laughs> what's, he, what's he requiring you to risk right now? Uh, With God, it never is a a, a safe proposition, is it? (laughs) It really never is a safe proposition. He is always pushing the limits. Have you ever noticed that as you're reading through the Gospels? I I get this sense that the disciples were always on edge. (laughs) Oh, God. What he said yesterday... How are we going to do control damage? How are we going to damage control? You know, Jesus is drifting off to sleep. I have this image, you know, many nights that, you know, Jesus is drifting off to sleep and the disciples are sitting by a crackling fire and they're looking at one another. Did you understand what he said today? Oh, I'm sure glad you brought it up because I wasn't going to be the one to break the awkward silence. I want, to, I want to get to where Peter is and get there quickly. He did. Now, notice his response, which I have a little different take on this, which is probably not surprising to you. What does he do when they start pulling in and their nets are snapping? Just popping and snapping and fish are getting away. See, I want you to understand this is not just about fishing. You You say, well, you're right, because Jesus would say, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And we have relegated that just to having the tone of evangelism. Here is a, a scripture that is all about evangelism. And I, I certainly would not take issue with that, but I think it has more meaning than that. Far more meaning than that. But before I get to that, Jesus, after he gives them this directive and they see the results of it, Peter falls at his feet and what does he do? He begins to worship him and he says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy. See, there is something that is going to have to be dealt with. Especially as it relates to worship. Please hear what I'm saying now. Because usually there, without, without it being intentional, there is this sense that in worship, what we are doing, we're groveling at the feet of this cosmic egomaniac that demands attention and appeasement. Now I know that's not true here because you understand the Father's heart and love, but you do know that there are a lot of people that way back somewhere, sublimated in their psyche, there is this thing that I worship because I'm unworthy. You're worthy, I'm not. And I think that's a tragic mistake. Because God does not require worship because he has this enormous, fragile ego that has to be regularly appeased. See, this is, I, I, I had that misconception for a long time. And I thought, you know, I felt so unworthy. And the church culture that I grew up in continued to encourage that. I was just unworthy, unworthy, unworthy. I mean, I heard the message. I was always reminded so much of what I'm not until I never knew who I was, and I lived in a form of schizophrenia all the time. I would go to church, and one week they would preach on faith, and the next week they would dangle me over hell. (laughs) Every altar call that they had, especially after those booming messages about the any-minute evacuation. I was there, man, because... At that article, I was there. I would confess every sin I could think of and those I would conjure up just to make sure. (laughs) Living not in the eternal security that the scriptures teaches us, but in eternal insecurity. (laughs) Thinking that my repeated failures had had any way affected God's heart toward me, thinking, thinking, thinking the wrong things, thinking that the carnage of the crucifixion was proof that I was unworthy and that Jesus had to die to change God's mind about me when in reality Jesus died to change my mind about God. And whenever we would have communion, oh gosh, I would just start shrinking. It always, you know, whenever I came in and we saw the the communion table set, I would just begin to cringe inside because I knew what was coming. I knew in in the tone of a eulogy, which I never really understood that. I understand the solemnity of the Lord's table, But do you really see that what Paul taught us and what Jesus taught us, it's not about remembering the last time you failed. This do also in remembrance of me. But I would sit there, don't you come up here and take this cup and take it unworthy. Does anybody recognize what I'm talking about? Don't you dare come, but you. you want to drink damnation to your soul. And so it wasn't about communion. See, what is communion anyway? It's not about a cup and a wafer, it's about your union with Him. It's about your communion. It's, it's, it's about you understanding that it's not about you, but about Christ that lives in you. The reason why people don't have any hope anymore is because they don't understand the mystery, the greatest mystery that has ever been. In Colossians chapter 1, that has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but it now is made manifest. It's visible. It's tangible. That is Christ in us, the hope of glory. The hope of glory is not that Jesus will return one day and snatch me out of this corrupt, perverse world. Listen, that's not the hope of glory. The hope of glory is having the revelation and coming to the consciousness, finally waking up to who I really am, not what I 'm not. The reason why that there is so much sin in the church is not because, the reason why there's so much sin in the church is not because uh, we have not heard enough hellfire and brimstone preaching. The reason why there is so much sin in the church is because people are constantly reminded of what they are not. If I tell you not to think about something, you are going to think about it. It is the law that empowers sin. But if I constantly remind you of who you are, am I helping anyone? Some friends of mine told me recently about... Uh, a return visit from Africa And they were in a very remote vi- village I don't re- recall right now What country it is But it illustrates what I'm talking about And when they had just arrived They got in on the plane And they'd taken the Land Rover Out to this remote village When As soon as they got out of the Land Rover They saw that the village There was a buzz going on And people were pouring out of their huts To the center of the village And uh, they They didn't speak the local language of course and so they asked through the interpreter said what's going on they said oh a young man has been caught stealing and they said oh no are they getting ready to stone him and they said no watch what happens in our culture Now, see, this is tough for some people because I understand that there are consequences to our decisions, but I also understand that a lot of that is because we are trying to compensate for things that are lacking. Are you still with me? So all the people gathered around this young African male who was standing in the midst of them and rather than standing there and stoning him and scolding him and rebuking him for his theft, they all began to call him by name and remind him that this was not who he was. You are a good son. You are a son that your father can be proud. The young man imploded and fell to the ground weeping. I think maybe they got real repentance out of him. You see, that doesn't fit with what the Bible teaches. Maybe you need an upgrade because the Bible said it's the goodness of God that brings men to repentance. You sang about it earlier. Do you still believe in it? Back to Peter. (laughs) I'm unworthy. Depart from me, I'm a wicked man. The purpose of worship is to restore your worth to help you to understand it's not so much about what you think is wrong with you. What you can find out. How many of you are tired of trying to fix yourself? Huh? Yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll totally wear you out. How many of you are tired of trying to get your act together? Let me see those hands. Huh? But just if by chance you were able to get your act together for at least 24 hours, it'd still be nothing but an act. I'm trying, you're trying to fix something that you can't fix yourself. Kind of reminds me of the young plumber who had never heard of Niagara Falls, never seen it before. And he just gets, he finishes his training, gets his plumber's license, and somebody takes him on a trip to Niagara Falls. Remember, he's never seen it before, never heard of it. And he's this young, aspiring plumber. And when he sees it, his eyes get as big as saucers, and he said, I think I can fix it. (laughs) You can't fix it. So, am I failing successfully? Uh, it's it, it's a, again a part of the ongoing curriculum, isn't it? it? Never ceases. Peter is going to be made a fisher of men, and see, I really believe that oh, this is the opportunity. This is the opportunity for many of you. Go ahead and stand with me. This is the opportunity for many of you to begin to realize, please don't leave me now. (laughs) To begin to realize that so many, listen, so many of the things that you have defined as being defeat is really the threshold to some of the greatest victories that you've ever experienced. He said to me a few months ago when I was feeling rather defeated and you say, God speaks to you like this? He does from time to time. Sometimes He's talking to me and I'm, remember, because in the context, I'm not hearing it because I'm so used to hearing Him in other ways and I have restricted the way that he speaks to me and through whom he speaks. And so he said to me as I was feeling rather defeated and almost uh, resigning to feeling like a failure, he said, Randall, I do my best at snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. That's where I'm at my best. And flooding into my mind came the writings of the apostle Paul when he said, if the princes of this world had known. (laughs) I love that. See, they didn't know. If the princes of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Why? You say, well, that has to do with Jesus. Oh, listen, don't, don't confine that truth. Understand that it's relevant for you as well. Because God will let you, like Jesus, be stripped of everything. I mean, we have sanitized the cross. Jesus is utterly humiliated. Stripped naked. A body that is so torn and disfigured. Isaiah said that it was so bad. He didn't say it this way. It was so bad you'd had de- to have dental records to identify. Him. His, fe- his visage was marred more than any other man. Y- you know why he went through all that? To prove to you that no matter how much you've been beat up, no matter how much you've been stripped, it is not just about the atoning work, the effects of sin, but understand no matter how much it looks like that you've been deserted and you have been betrayed and you have been rejected, Are you still here with me in this room? Are you? It doesn't make any difference how much you've been stripped of, how much you've been humiliated. It doesn't make any difference because it is just on the other side of that that God brings you into the most glorious resurrection that you have ever experienced in your entire life. The most successful men, the icons of success in our culture today, See, you don't understand that an overnight success takes years. You don't understand that some of these men tried and failed and went bankrupt and lost everything, lost family, lost children. Do you want to fail successfully? Now, this is before I get ready to turn it back over to the ministry team. This is something that I I feel that I want to do. I came here this morning to get some confessions and to get some conversions. And I'm not talking about people that are here in the room, even though there may be people here in the room that have yet to accept Jesus. I came here to get some confessions and conversions out of Christians. <laughs> yeah. When I say confession, what most, what most of the time do we think? The divulging of those things that we would rather have not had known but the word confession is like a coin it has another side it also means to agree with so god wants you to stop agreeing with all those things that you fixated on and start agreeing with him huh are you willing to do that to start agreeing with him the next the next time the unfinished the next time the next time that the unfinished begins to taunt you and haunt you. Does anybody know what that's like? I mean, there's so many things. You look back, you don't even have the momentum or the desire to start something new because when you look back over your shoulder, all you can see is all those unfinished things. Maybe what you ought to start looking for is found in Psalm 23:6. The twins of goodness and mercy that will follow you all the days of your life. Not the twins of defeat and failure. And you listen, you'll see what you're looking for. Huh? I mean, what you focus on determines what you miss. And so what you need to start focusing on is the goodness and the mercy of the Lord. Taken right there from the Journal of David. And if there's anybody that had his share of failures, he did. But all he could see is goodness and mercy in the rearview mirror. So are you willing Just say right now, Lord, I confess. I agree with you. I don't agree with my failure. I don't agree with that, the way that I, I dropped out, the, the way that I gave up. I don't agree with that. Lord, that doesn't define me. I agree with you. I confess, Lord, in what you have to say about me. Lord, awaken dreams that are lying dormant in this room. Hey, come on now. Some of you even that are in my around my age, you need to begin to dream again. Yeah, I'm beginning to dream more now than I did when I was in my 20s. I'm beginning to understand that there is something that has been latent in me. What do I mean latent? I mean it's been there all along. And the right circumstances are now showing up to wake it up inside of me. And there's some of you right now that live in dread every day of your lives. You need to ascend into the pure atmosphere of dreams. Where dread is suffocated by the fresh atmosphere of dreams. Come on. Do you want to dream again? Come on. Lord, I I thank you tonight. I thank you this morning, Lord, that you're stirring in us that down beneath the gray coals of yesterday, down beneath the gray, lifeless coals of yesterday, there is an ember that is just waiting to be provoked, just waiting to be stirred so that I can dream again, dream again. Tell him, I want to dream again. I want to dream again. I want to dream again. Now, it's only seven minutes after 12, and I'll leave you with this. One of my favorite stories I've been telling in the last two or three weeks. When I say Walt Disney, what do you think of? Somebody said Mickey Mouse. (laughs) A little bigger than that. This man, listen, you know that I really believe that he was a gift to all of us to expand our imaginations. The magic kingdom. You say, well, this was all about amusement. No, it was more than that. You say, oh, this is all just about, you know, caricatures and cartoons. No, no, it was more than that. Because he had an influence on you before anybody else did. He began to influence you as small children, didn't he? And he's still doing it generations later. When Walt Disney was dying, this is a little known story by most. When Walt Disney was dying, he's in a hospital room. There was a reporter that kept pressing for the opportunity to get an interview with him and they kept declining. And finally, they gave him the opportunity to go in and see Disney. Disney, when he walks into the room, he is so excited, not Disney, but the reporter is that he's going to be the last one to get the last words of Disney. And he sees this man that is already beginning to emaciate. And he's lying there too weak to talk. And Disney motions for him to come over to the bed. And he thinks this is rather strange behavior. Is he gone senile? What is he wanting? And so he keeps motioning for him to come over closer to the bed. And when he gets to the bed, he slides over a little bit and motions for him to lay down beside of him. When the reporter laid down beside of him, he realized that Disney, this was not bizarre behavior after all, because when he laid down beside of him, he could see taped to the ceiling, the sketches that he had for Disneyland. Disney was dying, but his dream was still going on. He would not allow himself to die and not continue to dream. The reason why a lot of people are dying while they're still alive is because they don't have any dream. Because of the repeated failure that has calloused them. It was later said that after Disney's death, six years later, it was completed, and somebody said it's a shame that Walt didn't get to live to see this. And his brother responded by saying he saw it before any of us saw it. Thank you, Jesus. Do you feel do you feel encouragement? Do you do you feel encouragement? Yeah. It's in the room. It's in the room. People, God's people need hope more now than ever before. Thank you, Lord, for hope. Thank you for hope. Thank you for encouragement. Amen. Just reach out and put your hand. I know we've been doing this all morning long. There's been all kinds of minutes. Put your hand on the person right, on either side of you. Believe God now. Don't don't try to think too hard. Complicated. Just believe God right now to give you one word. Just one word for them. Just one word for them in Jesus' name. Thank you, River Life. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Bless you this morning. Uh,
0: thank you, Lord. The Lord's good, isn't he? That's a great word for everybody in here and for our church corporately. I think that really speaks to us. So, Lord, we just pray that...